After Fire Cinema, we talk about movies we love. My name is Aaron, and I'm joined here by... Jordan. So how do you want to start this thing off? Why don't you start it? Um, okay. Start it off with, uh, let's get this dumpster fire started. There you go. Man. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, we're going to be talking about The Fifth Element, which I was looking it up today, and it's, what, like 20... 20 years old. That's 20 years old this yeah. year, I think. Wow, it is 20 years old. I know. It? I know. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, my God. It's funny because, like, I think in 1997, I wasn't old enough to watch it. That's for sure. I didn't see it until I was probably a freshman in high school, maybe a little bit younger. It was old news by that point. I probably saw it when I was 19. Oh, okay. That's a guess. Okay. So, not too long after it came out. Uh, matter of fact, I remember seeing commercials for it. I thought, wow, that looks really stupid. <laughs> and I didn't think about it. Not even one time until I caught it on TV, I think. Yeah. I never saw, I never saw anything about it. And then I, I think like my sister rented it from Blockbuster of all Ooh. places. And we ended up watching it and I was like, what is this magnificence? This is, I mean, it's probably one of my top favorite movies. I mean, I can watch this movie anytime. Yeah, I, I've anytime. probably watched it 50 times. Because I will say this right now. This is my favorite film. That's why we're doing it. It was my top pick because this is legit my favorite film. I know there's better films, but this one's my favorite. Yeah, and it's super quotable. And it's just, I mean, there's so many wonderful, campy, just nonsense that I you know we could probably talk about forever and ever the one thing though that always makes me laugh is that they have Luke Perry in the very first credit was this Luke Perry's last role <laughs> I don't it might know. have been well the funny because because he's only in the very first like 15 minutes and I don't know if it's because of how popular he was back in the late 90s and they were like oh we have to put Luke Perry in the credits, even though no, he wasn't? No. Luke Perry's, he was over with by this point. <laughs> this was like a wild card cameo. That's no, so Nobody weird. expected it. Well, and to have him in the main credits, because like, you know, you'll have surprise cameos in movies now, and they don't even put them in the main credits. Yeah. You just see them, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so-and-so. Yeah, it does seem <laughs> a little weird that he got he got high billing for this when he really isn't even in the film and he wasn't famous he's, anymore at the time. He's kind of a whiny bitch. Like he's he's just like, Oh my god, you killed the professor. Ah! And then he like freaks out with the gun oh, and, and uh, like... Yeah, and of course, like like in Beverly Hills nine oh two one oh, Luke Perry fucks it all up. <laughs> he makes everything go tits up because I guess he tries to shoot he shoots the uh the alien, the uh what do they call those things? The Mondachi ones. Mondachi. I see. Every time they said it in the movie, it was always so mumbly. Like, uh, like Ian Holmes says it like once or twice, and he says it so quick. The other funny thing is, forever, I guess, watching this as a as a young person, I thought the professor was saying, "Are you chairman?" And it just just confused me for a very long time. And then I watched it with the subtitles, and he says, "Are you German?" Oh yeah. Which. Again, it took me a minute to realize it's, it's, it's 1914. It's 1914. World War One is happening. There's like all sorts of um, technological advances happening at that time. And so for him to assume that these are German soldiers in these big ass metal whatever. Because of their technology. Yeah. Right. Like, 
it it just makes me way more sense than are you chairman which i, I don't even know where that came from <laughs> yeah but it's it's kind of funny too you know uh I want to know, and they don't explain this in the movie. I'm going to skip forward a little bit to uh, 2257 when um, Ian Holm, he's a priest and he's he's the carrier of this lore. He knows about the the Monachuans, but so does the president. President Tiny fucking Lister. I know. He's so funny to me because he is great. He does. Okay. And I might get a lot of like hatred for this, but he does such a shit job. What? Yes, I think he's terrible. Even watching as an adult and like watching other movies that he's been in, like, I don't know, it's weird. And you know how sometimes you'll watch a movie with an actor that's really not that great and you see him along somebody, alongside somebody who is really fantastic and you can clearly see the difference? Yeah. Like, that's kind of how I feel about him in this movie. Like, I mean, obviously he's kind of funny and he's this big hulking dude that any moment I want him to be like, that's my bike. That's my bike. <laughs> you got on my phony. <laughs> I feel the opposite way for the exact same reasons. I think <laughs> that he, that he was good in this movie. It was kind of cool to see him kind of chilled out and calm, dignified. Right. I felt the same way about Brian James, who plays general Monroe. He was in, um, uh, Blade Runner. He, uh-huh. he was like that first replicant. Uh, I think, I think his name was, um, Leon Kowalski. And, and you're he, right oh my gosh i didn't even like place that until just now yeah that's it oh and, man and just to see him in this movie like in the scene where and i'm gonna jump ahead a little bit again but in the scene where corbin his mom calls and he answers the phone and she's like you want a trip corbin and then leon kowalski shows up or <laughs> not leon kowalski but but general monroe yeah. shows up with the uh with the lady with the princess leia sticky bun yes hair, which is great he kind of has this uh this friendship with uh with corbin mm-hmm. uh they go way back because they're both military guys but he was like real calm and it just seems so weird to see him being that way or just people in that situation being that way well i wanted to kind of talk about um Luc Besson, we didn't look up to see how to pronounce his name, so if I totally dragged that through the mud, I'm really sorry. We don't apologize. <laughs> um, Luc Besson, um, if you didn't know, he also directed Leon the Professional. Yes. Um, which I didn't actually see until a couple years ago, and I was really ashamed of myself. I was like, man, this is such a good movie. How did I miss this? Um, he also directed Lucy with um, Scarlett Johansson, oh, yeah. which was actually... It's an interesting movie. It's, I liked Lucy. It's a it's a mind trip. Like you mm-hmm. you kind of have to just stay put because at first you're like I don't know how I feel, but you got to keep going with it. It was a fantastic action film. It it was stupid in the end. <laughs> the ending was fucking dumb. I've I almost the dumbest, but it was a good movie. It was a good ride, and Scarlett Johansson is fantastic. And most recently, he did the Valerian movie, which I have not seen. I haven't seen it either. It's one of those things where I saw the previews and I thought, ooh, that looks interesting, but not interesting enough to where I want to pay money to go see it. For me, I was like, oh, wow, new movie from Luc Besson. Is this this generation's fifth element? And come to find out, I don't think it was. The reviews are bad. um, And I have, like I said, I haven't seen it, but I feel like if it were... Then I would, then I that message would have been conveyed to me by now. Well, the the media and the geek crowd as a whole thought it was not a good movie, which that speaks volumes to me because if the geek crowd goes, oh, let's not, 
I don't really think you should watch this movie. I'm going to go, okay, if somebody pulls it out at a party, I'll probably sit down to watch five minutes of it, but I'm not, I'm not going to invest money in it, which kind of makes me sad because I'd hate, I hate to say it, but I mean, maybe Luke Besson hit his, hit his mark with Fifth Element and Lucy. I mean, I don't know though. Maybe, maybe it was just a, a case of him flying too close to the sun with Valerian and then it just, you know, maybe his next one won't be so bad. I don't know. I would say that Lucy isn't really in the same league as Fifth Element. Oh, so no. So let me, let me preface no. that. Let me preface this with that. Fifth Element was uh, what they call lightning in a bottle. Yeah. It was a perfect storm uh, of just everything kind of went right. Uh, if one thing about this movie was different it wouldn't be as good if bruce willis said no if chris tucker said no mm-hmm. you know uh if the writing was a little bit shittier yeah if uh if what's his name mark robert mark Kamen hadn't been a co-writer on this it might have yeah. been a totally different movie um i just think that that this was like uh all the the stars and planets aligning in just the right way i i imagine that this was one of those things where bruce willis and chris tucker and probably Tiny Lister and Gary Oldman were on vacation or something. <laughs> you know, they were they were vacationing in France and somebody, you know, approached him and said, let's make a movie. I don't know if that's what happened or not. Well, funny story. I was actually looking up interesting facts about the casting and Bruce Willis because they had originally thought they really wanted Mel Gibson. What? Can you imagine this movie with Mel Gibson? I can't. I can't. It wouldn't be as good. I, I don't think so either. But they decided to go with Bruce Willis, who at the time was, he was already like action star Bruce Willis by this point. And so he he decided or he agreed to take a lower pay cut for this movie. I read an interview where he said, you know, he sometimes will do scripts because they're fun. And so that's why he chose it. And he it paid off in the end because, I mean, this movie made its money back like three times over it made uh it, it had a budget of 90 million and it grossed 264 million box yeah. office yeah that's so, that's really good that's a very big success it's the most expensive european film at the time that it was made yeah and it's also it was also the most uh successful grossing french film uh until 2011's uh the in the untouchables which i haven't seen but it up until like then, a porno. I know, kind of does, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but up until then, it was the most successful grossing French film ever. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is that for uh, for Chris Tucker's Ruby Rod, they originally wanted Prince, and Prince turned it down because he said that the clothes were too effeminate. Isn't that ironic? The, that dude ain't never shopped in the men's section <laughs> in his life. Chris Tucker said it was a mixture of Michael Jackson and Prince like put together and that's where he yeah. kind of drew his inspiration but I that's funny though like because you were saying how all the elements came together perfectly I can't imagine anyone else in any of these roles no like it's just it's too hard for me to go oh I could definitely see no like it's just way too perfect with the casting yeah and and Chris Tucker I mean just like Tiny Lister the the only thing that he was really notable for before this was Friday. And yeah. he was good in that, but I never thought he would be sci-fi material. I never thought he would be able to do a role like, like Ruby Rod. Right. Ruby Rod is one of the most memorable characters in sci-fi history for sure. Oh, And maybe yes. just ever. I mean, who who could forget Ruby Rod? 
fantastic. I mean, I and he was Chris Tuckering it. You know, mm-hmm. he was doing Chris Tucker. Uh, I imagine that uh, Luke Basson didn't intend for Ruby Rod to turn out how it did, but it. I think that once he saw Chris Tucker's performance, he was like, "Fuck yes, this is the guy." If there is a year that you go to a Comic-Con and there's not somebody cosplaying Ruby Rod, it is a sad year indeed. Because everybody wants to do Lilu. I mean, they. Yeah. I mean, you'll see like five to ten Lilus running around. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the two years in a row that I went to Comic-Con in Dallas, I saw Ruby Rod. At least one. And it was just so cool to me to see this just pop culture icon that, you know, at, at glance you might be like, who is that? But then you see like the – like you know at towards the end of the movie where he had like the rose jumpsuit and the and the freaking um the his, hair it's like a reverse beehive yeah it's like a front facing <laughs> beehive yeah. yeah it's great yeah would you listen to ruby rod's radio show there's a part like a big part of me i guess the fan in me that goes oh of course i would but in if i didn't know who he was and like his show was coming on and it's batshit like he is just and it's hard for me to go 100% say I would listen to his show because it would probably drive me a little bit crazy and you know the thing about it is is Ruby Rod doesn't really do like interviews or anything that we see he just talks so and and we don't see him play music either so I mean like what the fuck kind of radio station is this that Ruby Rod's on they're broadcasting live are they just broadcasting Ruby Rod all day and all night well and they he said something about um whenever they're on the the ship and they're about to go to Flossed in Paradise he talks about 50 billion ears right so the whole world at least the most populated areas are listening to this segment of his radio show yeah. so I, I mean it's it's got to be he's got to just be talking randomness all the time is this a show is this like a one-hour show that that we don't know it's never explained (laughs) for some reason in this universe ruby rod is like the shit and apparently he's like the sexiest thing that the future has to offer (laughs) right all these girls are just like going nuts ruby rod's a big deal in this world uh apparently and he's a great plot device he is he he moves the story forward he's great and they could have they could have killed him off so quickly towards the end of the movie they could have just been like oh ruby rod's dead but no they kept him through the whole last half of the movie he's the mascot for this movie he is yeah he is the other thing that i wanted to talk about was um the people who just have bit parts like the guy with the hat and he's just like give me the cash oh god i love that guy (laughs) give me the cash That, that is like when i first watched this movie and i saw that scene and that was when i knew that this movie was something special so so uh so basically, uh, Corbin Dallas looks out of his peephole and he sees a shot of the hallway and he opens the door and it's this guy and he's wearing a hat with a photo of the hallway <laughs> and he's got this big fucking gun. And of course, Corbin Dallas, you know, smooth talks his way out of the whole thing. And, yeah. and then the guy does this awkward little dance to, to end the scene. And it's just, I don't need it. It's, I don't need it. Yeah. And it's just so awkward. It's just the weirdest thing. Well, I don't. I just, I just love that Bruce Willis kind of laughs, and I can't <laughs> that's tell a, if that's a lovely hat. Yeah, like he's just like he he composes himself, and he's just like that's a nice hat. He's like thanks. <laughs> you know, I don't think he acted that. I, I think, think that was so his either. genuine reaction. <laughs> I, I do. I wonder if they told him that was gonna. Ha- well, obviously, 
Maybe they didn't. I don't know. <laughs> well, fun fact um, about not telling the cast stuff. They did not show the girl, the woman who plays Plava Laguna, the, mm-hmm. diva. the diva. They didn't show her in her costume until she comes out on stage to sing. Really? Yeah. So all the reactions you see from everybody is genuine. Huh. So, which, fun fact number two, that was actually Luc Besson's wife at the time, which they actually, um, he left her for Mila Jovovich. Yeah. And then they got married and then they promptly got got divorced divorced two years later. (laughs) But no, going back to the extras, the guys in the nucleo lab, um, the, the people on the ship, Ruby Rod's entourage, like all of the people. Aziz. Aziz Light. Yeah. Like that poor kid. Like. He, he probably didn't even get a dime. But everybody, I mean, you have the main characters, which drive the movie. But then you've got these background people, one of which is Finger, who you never see. And for the longest time, I thought was um, Vin Diesel. All of these extras add flavor. They add spice. And they make the world what it is. Because honestly, with all of these other people, I don't really know... You know, I mean, it would still be a good movie. It's good for world building. But Finger was a good character. You never see him. But, you know, he he drove the plot and he did it without it looking too obvious. Yeah. yeah. He looks like shit in that picture. <laughs> Which we never see. Yeah, that's it true. always bugs the shit out of me. I'm always like, what, what does he who look like? Is, who are you? Yeah. I need to know. And and Brian James uh, as General Monroe and the, the Sticky Bun girl. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a tiny touch that makes it so much better. Yeah. Just adds a little bit more and more to it there. And the don't forget about the guy, uh, the Matthew Broderick guy. The, not the Matthew skipper, Broderick. Not Matthew Broderick. <laughs> the skipper on the Flosten, USS Flosten or whatever. He looks so stressed out. I feel so bad for that guy. In the scene where Bruce Willis is, where they're getting uh, besieged by the Mangalores. Yeah. And, you know, anybody else want to negotiate that scene? He was so good in that. Uh, not Matthew Broderick. He was. He looked so nervous and scared, and he was just like, "I know." It's great. Yeah, it's like it. It's just all of these extra people. I mean, just just really make it what it is. But the person that I mostly want to talk about, and we have not touched on him, is Gary Oldman. Oh God, yes, Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. Zorg. Yeah, he actually hated this movie. Like they did an interview with him in 2014, and he was like, "I can't even bear it." Which makes me super sad because this is my favorite Gary Oldman movie. <laughs> and this is not his first Luke Besson movie. No, it's not. He did Leon the Professional as the villain, and then he did Fifth Element as a favor to him. Really? Yeah. Well, Luke Besson funded one of Gary Oldman's other movies. I can't think of what the name of it is, but he he helped fund that movie. And so Gary Oldman was like, oh, well, okay, you helped me, so I'll help you type thing. Um, but... He's just, the thing is, is that even if he hated doing this role, he was so freaking good. He was so good. And I, I don't know, just the way the character that he brought to it and his whole look and the limp, which they never explained. I don't know. And, and the, uh, the thing on his head, which they never explained. He's got like a, like a piece of of uh plastic on his head that his light, hair slides through light blue plastic that covers half of his head now he had some henchmen that had full blue plastic things on their head did you you remember that yeah but i didn't really put it together that maybe that's the same thing maybe it's uh <laughs> it's like a rank thing but it's, it's, they're not a military though 
Zorg is like a weapons manufacturer yeah. and an antiquities dealer, right? That's what he does. And and I want to talk about this real quick while we're talking about Zorg. The big bad in this movie is uh, basically a, a ball of evil in space <laughs> that can somehow call Zorg on the phone. Yeah. He talks to him on the phone. I just want to know how those two got hooked up. Like, yeah, I was well, thinking about that today. Well, the, the big ball of uh, evil is apparently telekinetic because he could make Zorg's nosebleed through the phone. It wasn't his nose. It was his forehead. That's right. It made his forehead bleed. <laughs> it looked... Just his forehead. Not gonna lie, though. It does look like chocolate syrup. It does look like chocolate... <laughs> you're absolutely... It probably is chocolate syrup. <laughs> yeah. But but he was able to do that. So maybe this thing is just like uh, like a god. It knows everything, can do anything. Yeah, I guess so. It's just... They never explain it. I think that that's better, though, because I, I think if they... I think if they explained how they met, it would have taken away... It would have demystified it, and it would have been less entertaining, I think. Because if we're like, oh, they met in a coffee shop. Now they're friends. Like, that... I don't know. Like, the, having that background just takes away from how evil this thing is, because... We don't actually know anything about it other than it's just ultimate evil and it likes to eat satellites so that it can send out radio waves. And it gives <laughs> us a it gives us a big um a big bad guy, a big plot bad guy without having to, you know, hire another actor. True. And it and it leaves us plenty of time for Zorg and Corbin Dallas, who never actually meet each other in this movie at all, or even know about each other's existence. Right, yeah. Our protagonist and our antagonist spend the entire movie unaware of each other yes it's rare because most of the time they have to meet there has to be exposition there has to be monologuing there yep. has to be all sorts of things to all where of the usual shit yes yeah and they totally moved away from that um which is it, it's just you know another sign of just how great this movie is that you can not have them meet and it's still a great movie you know? Yeah, and it, and it made sense. There was no reason for him to meet, but it's still weird. You would think that, uh, you know, I don't know if this is something that happens a lot in French cinema. Maybe it's a thing, but in American cinema, hell no. There's oh, got to yeah. be a Hans Gruber. <laughs> you know what I mean? You yeah. have to have that, that Hans Gruber moment with the monologue and, you know, all that. That's That's an American staple. I don't know. Maybe it's not like that. I haven't seen a lot of French movies. I haven't either, but you know, I think for I think for movies, people feel like the the good guy has to have a viable reason for hating the bad guy, and the only way you can do that is if you meet them and you see just how evil they are, and you're just like, you know, if if they're any kind of bad guy, they would have heard it by now, so they would have heard of this bad guy, and you know, they're like, oh, this guy's bad, I've got to stop him because I'm the hero, ta-da. Yeah, they totally they totally don't do that, and it's very refreshing. Yeah, it's different. Uh, Mila Jovovich was actually like she she'd been doing movies a little while before she did Fifth Element, and then she took a break to do her singing career, which I didn't even know she had one. And so then I think she was picked out of like three hundred girls. She'd spend like eight hours a day practicing her martial arts and karate and body movements and and all of that, but. Another fun fact, um, there are several several scenes where she's, like, high-kicking. She Mila couldn't get her leg to go that high, so they had to use this artificial leg to get to kick up that high. And I was just like, I would have never... I mean, the things they do for movies is just incredible to me. Like, you would never know that un until you see or you 
read an article and you're like, oh, okay. Now I'm going to be looking for it. Like anytime yeah. she does a high kick, I'll be like, oh, that's not her. That's a fake leg. So Mia Jovovic, uh, I remember from Dazed and Confused, which was uh-huh. filmed in my high school. Really? Yes. Interesting. Um, but anyways, yeah, she was on that movie. She was, it, she, it was just a tiny part. She's the one that sings the song about the aliens when they're at the moon tower. Yes. And so she was a singer. Uh, she still is a singer. She's done a lot of stuff with uh, Tool, with uh, Maynard Keenan. Oh. Uh, I think she sang for Pussifer or something like that. I don't oh, know. okay. I don't know. But I know that they're, they've been associated. She's gone on tour with them and stuff okay. like that. I think she was dating Linklater, too. I think she's got a habit of dating her directors. Um, uh, yeah, she was great in Days to Confused for five seconds. But, yeah. but, I mean, I even remember her from that. Uh, when I saw her on the commercials for The Fifth Element, I was like, wow. Uh, you know, good to see her doing something because I kind of knew she was going to be a star. She had, she looked so good in Dazed and Confused. She is just beautiful. Those eyes. I mean, she was striking in that movie. Yeah. And, uh, and I recognized her immediately, even though I hadn't seen her in like eight years. Yeah. Between those movies, something like that. Well, but the cool thing is, is that her, her being in a sci-fi movie launched her to do resident evil yeah i think if she didn't if she hadn't done fifth element i don't think that she would be the face of resident evil evil the movies anyway um but her i mean she's got great acting chops i mean i just as somebody who just kind of came out of nowhere and you know did a few things here and there like she's got some really great acting chops the other thing luke basson and mila they both came up with this language and they would write letters to each other in the language, I mean, it was just hundreds of words. Because, I mean, there's no... It, it's not based on anything. It's just gobbledygook, really, is what it yeah. is. But, I mean, it's it's just... It's one of those things where, um, again, it just shows the creativeness of, of this movie that you can have this kind of unknown woman learn... I mean, learn martial arts and learn this new language and just all of this really cool stuff. And so, I don't know if I could do it. I mean... Uh, I don't know. Like, if it's not based on anything, it seems kind of difficult. No, she's fantastic. She really kind of gave her all in this. She has done some really cool stuff in her career. Um, The Resident Evil movies are pretty good, but I'm anxious to see what she does next because, to be honest with you, those Resident Evil movies, they were okay, but she's too good for them. Yeah. It's kind of like Kate Beckinsale in those Underworld movies. I love those movies, but she's way too good for those movies. Man, I could... She should be doing other stuff. Bleh. Sorry, I'm I'm kind of like... You'll quote me on this later, but um, I'm 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 kind of a, a vampire elitist. Oh God! Especially not like uh, not Jesus. like. <laughs> shut up! It it's more it's more along the lines of like, what I think is good vampire lore versus what I think is garbage. And so, do you like the sparkly vampires from oh, Twilight? It's God, your favorite, no. right? God, blah. So you're blah. you like the Bram Stoker. That's more my that's more my my cup of yeah. tea, and so I, I don't hate the underworld movies. I just think they're kind of just well, they certainly take liberties with the lore. They oh well, certainly they do. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. I think do. they're good fun, good dumb fun though. Yeah, big yeah. dumb fun, and I and they have the amazing Bill Nighy, whom I love. Bill Nighy is yeah. like my number one. I mean, he's the <laughs> best. He's the best actor. Yeah. Also, they made him look really scary 
Yeah. You know, which yeah. is not, which is difficult because he, he just looks like a really nice old man and they made him look like creepy as hell. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was that movie he was in um, where he was a rock star? Uh, I, I keep wanting uh, love to say, actually. Yeah, love actually. I fucking <laughs> loved him in love actually. That's a great he was, movie. He was so good. Oh yeah, that was a that was a perfect movie. I have that's one movie that I have no complaints on. Mm, love yeah. actually was a perfect film. Oh, um, one of the other things is um, Eric Serra. Eric Serra did the music for this movie. Now he's done a lot of Luc Besson's scores. Um, but this one, I don't know what it is. The music for this always gets me because it's just so cool. Like you don't yeah. really hear stuff like this because it's got like a, it's very futuristic, but it also has like these. Okay, it's like a, it's like early nineties hip hop kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Like the scene where she gets stuck in the auto wash, um, and he's like, he's like drying her off. There's like this sultry saxophone playing in the background like Kenny G is going to town and all I can think of is like some some 90s or late 80s 90s um like soap opera playing like it's yeah. just it that it just it has it's so different like he has like Rastafarian kind of yeah there's some ro- like Jamaican music Middle Eastern themes and the very first uh song that we hear in present day is during the scene where uh, Lilu is escaping the facility and mm-hmm. she jumps off the building. And there's this really interesting, uh, like, hip-hop track, you know? Yeah. Uh, 90s hip-hop track. Almost sounds like something you would hear Millie Vanilli singing over, yeah. you know? Uh, but it's just so out of place, I think, in that scene. And then at one yeah. point, she jumps off the building and it just kind of... It's this beautiful piano riff. Yes. Like... Yeah, it's like it... it it's like... It's almost yeah. like the guy was watching the movie as he composed the score. Yeah. It's just so bizarre. But they... He puts it all together in just a lovely, beautiful way. Like, uh, the music also kind of makes this. Because I think if it was anything like John Williams sounding or, or any of those other people, like, I think he would take you out of it. Because the music makes it less serious because that's really what I think of when I watch this movie is it doesn't take itself too seriously. You're not so sucked into this sci-fi world that they can't break their own rules. But though I would argue that as far as sci-fi goes, this is about as sci-fi as it gets for, for being what it is and for being as big of a movie as it was, Mm -hmm. because this was a big deal. I mean, this, this wasn't some sleeper hit, right? This was designed to be, I mean, it's a $90 million movie. Yeah. So, uh, for what it is um, and for the environment in which it was built, it is way more sci-fi than it has any right to be. Um, you know, it's kind of got all the elements and it pulls it all together really well. I mean, it's, re- it's a real sci-fi movie. Yeah. Well, and he, you know, uh, Luc kind of made a comment about how, you know, he thought that the, the special effects and, and everything that he had back then were kind of primitive. Um, and he would have done a much better job had he made the movie now. And he even kind of hinted at, you know, wanting to do a sequel. And it just kind of made me think like, what would that even look like using today's special effects and CGI and all of that? Like how much would be either taken away or added to the movie to have what we have today, you know? Because by 1997 standards, the special effects for this movie are really great. Yes. So if we add 2017, 2018, 2019 technology to it, 
um, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to sit there and go, well, it would still feel the same as Fifth Element. Because I think it would take away from it a little bit. Well, there were a lot of practical effects in this film. They wouldn't have done it that way if it would have been made today. No, it wouldn't have been as good a film. The Mangalores, do you have any information on this? Were they puppets or costumes or were they digital? Because the way the Mangalores' mouths moved was really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I think it was a mixture because, I mean, just watching it again, I mean, even just the other night, I'm sitting there going, man, that's, if it's anything other than, if it's anything under, other than a mask, like, I'll be super surprised. Right, because it doesn't look like CG. Mm-mm. It looks practical, but it's good. Way better than I would expect puppeteering to be. Maybe it's animatronic? It's possible. I mean, maybe they, maybe they have a mixture of both because... Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's super good. And that's the, that's the thing that I worry about though, is if they ever decided that they wanted to do like a sequel to fifth element or anything like that, they would take advantage of the CGI and make all of the characters CGI, you know, like, and I'll, you know, this is a tiny little rant and then we won't talk about it ever again, but you know, Going back and fixing the Star Wars characters to be CGI instead of the puppets that were originally made for them is probably the crappiest thing that he could have done for that franchise. And because it looks like crap. It's not even remotely the same. Having the actual puppets and animatronics is what made those movies. And it's the same for Fifth Element. So if if you took this movie and you made it in 2017, my guess is that they would be... Um, they would be tempted to use CGI because it's easier. You don't have to make the costumes. You don't have to have the people. You just have somebody sitting at a computer working on whatever. So, and I think it just, it takes away from the realness of it. You're pulled out because you're like, man, that just looks so fake. It looks so terrible. You ever heard the term, uh, the uh, phrase, every frame of painting? Yeah. That applies very heavily to this movie. Just Mm -hmm. every... It almost reminds me of like Guardians of the Galaxy um, in yeah. that every time you could pause the, the movie anywhere and it looks like a comic book panel. Any of the movies that I've seen that he's directed, I'm like, wow, that is just so pretty. Well, and look at the scenes um, like at the beginning of the movie when Lilu's falling uh, from the building and, and falls into Dallas's uh, cab and you've got uh, all of this cityscape that she's falling through. And it looks great. Yeah, it does. It looks real. Mm-hmm. And it's and that's not that's not digital. No, that's all composite shots. Mm-hmm. And today they would make it digital and it'd look like shit. Yeah, and I, I'm not trying to bash, bash CGI. I think it's a fantastic technology because you have really great movies that have come out with CGI and and they have really taken it to a level where. You can do so much more that you couldn't have you you wouldn't have been able to do twenty years ago, even ten years ago. Um, but it does have its limits. Yes. It, there are places where you have to use practical effects or it looks bad. Blood. Yeah. Uh, that's something that they try to do all the time digitally, and it always looks like shit. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's it's just it's a constant um, argument in the media cinema world where. CGI, no CGI, you know, can we get away with it? Can we not? Like, what what exactly can we do? And um, and right now, it's practical effects are in vogue again. 
Yeah. Uh, and the the film snobs are all about it. They never really went away from it, but like now it's almost a badge of honor if you use practical effects in your movie. People yeah. respect you more for it. Well, because yeah. it's it's more difficult. You yes. have to you you have to. It's not just a computer program. You have to actually sit there and think about okay, so how are we going to make this look real, and where do we where do we put in CGI? Where do we not? Like, how do we like all of that to me is, you know, being a somewhat of a film snob, I think I would, I would stay away from CGI as much as I could until I was like, okay, we have to do CGI for this. Cause it's just impossible not to. Well, I would think doing practical effects is more fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. The, the hard work that goes into it and, and all of that stuff. So let me ask you, there's one scene and this is one of those things that stuck out with me. There was a, a spaceship that was, I believe it was a ship that left Earth going towards, uh, maybe it was the Floston uh, cruise ship. Yeah. But they showed it ascending into space and it was, it was like a composite shot and you could see the little, you could see a little bit of space around the ship where it looked like the colors didn't quite match up yeah. when they chromed it out. And, uh, and it looked just like, uh, Star Wars, like a new hope, you know, yeah. uh, some of the, some of the early scenes at the beginning of that movie look the same way. And they've also got in the same shot, these two, uh, giant ships that look like the Imperial Star Destroyers from yes. the first movie. Yes. Is that totally shot do. an homage to a new hope? Um, like, did they put know. that shitty compositing in there on purpose to make it look like a new hope just to to throw a nod that way i think they did i well i actually did not think about that until just now like i i just you know the shot i'm talking about yeah 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 i didn't even i didn't even think about it until just now but i i mean i why not i think they did (laughs) i think they certainly had the technology to get that that uh chroma issue out of there yeah and they didn't miss it if you're going to do a space movie, why not? Why not do an homage? It's It just seems, I think it's it just great. seems right. And of course, when right. this, I believe when this movie came out was right around the time George Lucas released the uh, CG remasters of those movies. So maybe it was even mm, a protest. Maybe. I don't know. I'll have to go back and actually look at that and like pause the frame and just see. You can't miss it. <laughs> you, you don't have to pause it to see it. It's pretty glaring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely have to go oh. back and look at that. Cause that's just, that's funny. If it is, it's, it's hilarious. I, I think it might be a tip of the hat. Um, we didn't talk about, uh, the diva Plava Laguna. We mentioned her. She has a very compelling, uh, scene in this movie. People have tried to recreate that song, like them, like actually singing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that today. Do you know who sang the song? Inva Mula. She's an Albanian opera lyric soprano. And basically, this is this is her claim to fame. <laughs> it makes me laugh because all these people gather to watch this diva, and she only sings one song. I know, right? <laughs> right? It's true. Like, I don't know. Maybe she was gonna sing more, but she got shot. Of course. <laughs> I guess so. I don't. But everybody was like standing up and clapping, and then nothing else was going on for a second, and then she gets shot, and you're like, oh, what, that was it? One song? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it was pretty impressive. But yeah, Luc Besson's wife was, she did the, um, the lip syncing. She was the alien. She did all the dance, the cool dance moves yeah. that she did. Which are terrible, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that, but you go ahead. 
Um, and so she, she did all of that, but then I guess they had the, the opera singer actually, they put her in later on during post, but, um, but yeah, no, I don't know because the, the part where she, um, she does kind of the riff, you know, when Lilu does her fingers, the, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do they, it. When they sink it to the fight scene, right. which is awesome. Yeah. I, I can't tell if somebody's voice could actually do that or if they did it in editing to where it, it sounded like that. Like, I, I don't actually where know. Where she's kind of singing two notes at the same time. Yeah. 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 I, I don't actually know. It, I doubt it was real. It bugs me as a singer because I want to be like, how could you do that with your voice? And then the more I listen to it, the more I'm like, oh, that that sounds like it was edited. It yeah. couldn't be real, could it? I doubt it. Hey, maybe if somebody listens to the shit show here, they'll, uh, <laughs> they can they can tell us we're fucking idiots for not knowing this. You're wrong. She could, deduce, she could have sang that and sang it all the time like that. You know, I, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln that said, if you want to get the right answer to a question, just give the wrong answer on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure that was Lincoln. okay so so i have a confession to make i can't watch that scene why because it makes me cringe to death the like her the dance singing? moves oh when she starts doing the thing she does with the oh god oh it just <laughs> I, i'm doing it right now i feel physically flush and just I, it's just something about it. it. It gets to me in a way where I just can't look at it. It's just so bad. Is it? Her, it kind of kills me. Is it her blue vinyl head dog? <laughs> because it just kind of wiggles. Yeah, it might be that. It could. It could be the the weird dreadlock things. It and the look on her face is so weird when I she's know. doing it. It's just the whole thing for me. Just like it. It almost hurts to watch. Maybe if she had eyebrows, it wouldn't be so weird. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I mean, I love the I love the scene. I love the song. I love the way they integrated it with the fight scene. I think that's great. But man, I can't watch her dance. I don't know. I'm... Because I think there was something wrong with the suit. Where like, if she moved too much, maybe it would fall apart. Well, you could see because when she moved, when she did the hip thrusting or whatever yeah. uh. <laughs> you, could see, you could see whatever was going on underneath the, the suit yes yeah and like other clothes or wires or whatever and it just like it weirded me out too so i have to like focus on everything else like i just have to focus on her face and the song because it makes me excited like when they all get hushed and she comes out and starts to sing i'm like oh my gosh this is such a cool scene and i don't know i i I just have an opposite reaction. I just, I mean, I, I've, I've had moments where, you know, I'm actually cringing during a movie and I, I can't watch those scenes, but that's, that's not one of them. Really? Yeah. It is, it is the only one for me. It just skeeves me out to watch just that one part. There's like five seconds of that whole thing that it just skeeved me out. It's, but the, it's the vinyl headdress, man. I, maybe it's just the uncanniness of it all. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, there are some things, though, that that don't make – I don't know if it's the edit, Like, the editing, for the most part, is really great. The yes. way that they edit stuff together, especially when there's two scenes happening at once. Like, when Lilu's describing where the stones are and Zorg is getting the case from the Mandalores or whatever they're called. And, and it goes split screen. Right, because he says, stolen, and he goes – or no, she says it's empty, and he goes, empty. <laughs> no, she laughs. Yeah. She laughs. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Yes. 
perfect. But there are some things that like don't really make sense. Like, okay, so you know the part where they go to grab the guy in Corbin Dallas's apartment where mm-hmm. he's like, Spoke you. And the the Mandalores like come in where their their boss is and he's sitting on their ground and he's bloody and he's got a like a blanket and like half of his ear is coming off. Why is he like that? I, I don't know. I don't know. There's there's no reason for it, is there? I'm sitting there going, wait, was there a fight that I missed? And the only thing I can think of is when they um when they press the red button mm-hmm. on the uh, on the gun and they all explode. They blew up. That's the but nobody else is hurt. It's just that leader guy that is I guess Aknot is his is his name. Yeah. There's nobody else that's hurt. It's just him. And I'm like what happened, man? Your ear is coming off. <laughs> so do we know if that is the same um, Mangalore that was played by Tricky in the airport? In the spaceport? Tricky. Tricky. You know, the, the rapper. The British rapper Tricky. He was the Mangalore, the black guy. Uh, oh, oh, yes. He wasn't a Mangalore. He was Zorg's like assistant. Oh, okay, okay. They did have a Mangalore that did that could that shape shift disguised. his face, but, but it, it wasn't, wasn't that him. guy. Okay, I didn't know he was so, a rapper. Yeah, he's a rapper. His <laughs> name's Tricky. He's been around for a long time. He's very good. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, that that guy was great too. Uh, the the part where he's the roach and he gets smacked and he's like, ugh. <laughs> it always cracks me up because I'm just like, he's just in a dark room somewhere. He attached a a satellite thing to a roach. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how you manage that, I don't know. But he did it, and then he gets smashed by the president's shoe, and it's so great because well, his headphones just go. And and that's another example of shitty technology in the year twenty two fifty seven. We've got uh, we've got shitty robots, we've got shitty remote controlled bugs, and we've got <laughs> cigarettes that are eighty percent filter and about twenty percent actual tobacco. <laughs> It's it's like uh, technology has gone way wrong. It is so those cigarettes bugged the crap out of me. I always want to be like, turn it over, flip it, flip I thought it they, around. I kind of thought they were great. I mean, when have you ever seen that before? I Nowhere. Mean, I, I think it very well illustrates a future gone wrong. Yeah. You got shitty cigarettes that are twenty percent <laughs> fucking tobacco. <laughs> is this movie not a a, a, a kind of shitting on capitalism? It kind of is it totally a little is. bit, especially with the whole like the guy comes in and he's like, you know, the economy's heating up. I thought maybe we could fire 5,000 and the guy and Zorg's like fire sure. 1 million. Yeah. And you're like, holy yeah. shit. Like you could just fi- fire a million people. No big deal. Zorg is, is very much a representation of a capitalist. You know, I mean, obviously he plays a character that's a capitalist, but. Well, they have a whole conversation with the priest, with Ian Holmes character about yeah. how. All these machines have a function, and everybody and their family can eat, and they're. But it ain't kids. gonna, it ain't gonna knock that cherry out of your throat. Exactly. Right? Like there's a whole subtopic in this movie about capitalism well, and the economy and all of that. Well, and when you think about the time that it came out, um, the internet was still not quite in every home yet, mm-hmm. um, and technology was changing. It was starting to make things a little bit easier, but it wasn't very good yet. Yeah. So everything kind of sucked. Like, we had really (laughs) shitty cell phones back then. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you, but I don't know if you remember the Palm Pilots. 
Oh, yeah, a little bit. That little was bit, pretty yeah. much the shit back then. The fucking Palm Pilots. And they are they are a really good example of something that is designed to make your life easier, just not doing it at all. <laughs> just failing in every respect. Yeah. And so maybe it's a little bit of social commentary. I mean, it's obviously yeah. social commentary, but maybe it's a little more timely than, than you, you know. Maybe it's not necessarily reflecting a shitty future, but a shitty present. Yeah, I mean that's that would that would make more sense because obviously, you know, they they can only they can only talk about or they can only show what they know, which is we're living in a time of technological advancement, but not quite there yet. But I, I feel I feel like maybe in this world, uh capitalism has made technology into uh something that is no longer convenient. Yeah. Like innovation has has made it so that you just got to churn out the next fucking product. Whether it's good or bad for society, it doesn't matter. Just get it out there. Yeah, fuck yeah. Our new cigarettes have 80% more filter. Woo! Right? Although the stuff in Corbin Dallas's apartment is like, like kind of convenient. Yeah. Well, I want a bed that makes itself, and I want a shower that automatically turns on and, and can... Like, his refrigerator goes down into the floor yes. and his shower is on top of it. Yeah. Like the- it's modular. And, and there's a lot of references to like modular living when they're in the, uh, on the, the Floston express, uh, they're in these tiny, they're sleeping in these tiny little compartments and there's a button that they can push that puts you to sleep instantly. Sleep regulator. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, although that would be super convenient because oh, I do horrible it? with flights. The other thing that doesn't make sense, and maybe I missed this along the way, but there's a part where they're taking off and Ruby Rod is making out with that chick and like there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And so at one point you see these two legs come out from the curtains. They look like the stewardesses or the, the flight attendant's legs, but they're so far apart and they like raise up when they take off like they come down yeah. before they before they go and then they raise them up as they take off and i'm sitting there going they're super far apart like they're not like together and they're not like splayed out like she's you know in the middle of something they're just like robot legs like they go up very stiff and they come down yes. very stiff yeah they totally do you're right though it was obviously somebody with a pair of mannequin legs that was <laughs> you know bringing them up and down there's just no explanation. They though. probably like, did what? it because they wanted it to match the sound of the landing gear. So they wanted it to kind of be so. a little axial, like if it was the landing gear on the on the plane, because that was kind of what they were trying to do was blend that motion in with the sound of the landing gear on the plane going. Yeah, up. I guess so. I just it was another one of those things where I was like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I there. get it. I think it's weird too, but I think I get the vision. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And that whole so small children, if you're listening, you should probably not fuck leave. off, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the scene where he is going to town on that flight attendant, I remember watching it as a young adult and going, like, I'm just sitting there. The physicality of how they're doing stuff is so funny to me because she's just standing up straight and he keeps like disappearing. And I like as a grown adult who has had children, I'm just sitting there going, what is he doing? Like, it's just it's it's just like not that I want to like see, but it's just one of those things where I'm just like as a young adult, very uncomfortable because I know he's doing something, but I don't know exactly what. And then like. 
it just gets more and more intense and like just the whole thing is just so bizarre to me like it's just like i don't i don't know the whole point i think of that entire section of the movie that whole sequence it was supposed to be a little overwhelming because there was a whole lot of confusion going on and then resolution so the whole thing was it was it was a build-up to a climax it was a it was a mini climax and you know not to not to be too on the nose here, but I mean I think that they were pretty on the nose with it, weren't That's they? That's true. That's they, true. They gave you the metaphor, and then they just straight up gave you the. Uh, well, and that's that's not that's something that I didn't really think about. I guess because I've just watched it so many times, I don't think about like the hills and the valleys of the movie. And this is this is one of those things where it's kind of a emotional balance like you're you're balancing out for a second like oh okay there's no action going on it's kind of because they're ramping up for the next last half of the movie to be this explosions and gunfire and oh my god the world's about to end like you don't really it's funny to go back and look at these as somebody who has watched so many movies and who has studied theater and film and things like that and just to kind of see all like again the hills and valleys that these movies provide and you're just like oh okay i never noticed that before but but yeah that's a good thing it's it's i never thought of it that way before about it being a a build-up to a resolution and then it being like a physical and actual climax happening at the same time i think it was good i like that sequence a lot that's one of my favorite parts of the film ruby rod just anytime ruby rod is on the screen it's it's wonderful that was a performance that i did not expect and another performance that I did not expect was Ian Holm. Mm, Ian Holm yes. in this movie really, really impressed me. He was so good. If I had to say, uh, you know, as far as acting chops, Ian Holmes had the best chops of anyone in the whole movie. He was He did so amazing. Good. Of course, for those of you who don't know, Ian Holmes played um, Father Vito Cornelius in the movie. And he was also Bilbo Baggins in all of the Peter Jackson, Bilbo. Lord of the Rings. See, what's funny, though, is I... I think I actually saw uh, Fellowship of the Ring before I saw Fifth Element. Wow. So I immediately, I've, I always associate him with Bilbo. Always. Yeah. So it's just so funny to me because when I saw him in Fifth Element, I was like, oh my God, it's Bilbo. See, it was the exact <laughs> opposite for me. When it's... I saw when I first saw Lord of the Rings, I was like, ah, it's Vito Cornelius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's great. He's great. He's just so, again, another character that is just so stressed out. And and Ian Holmes' assistant, David, like, he is scaring that child. Like, he's going to, like, pee his pants at one point because he's always being surprised. Any time that Vito Cornelius or anybody would come up behind him or surprise him, he's, like, jumping three feet yeah. in the air. He's just like, oh, my An- God. Another fantastic <gasps> character. I know. He's just so, he's so great. And he's just, like, tripping. He's this bumbling character that you know nothing about. Heart of he, gold. Yeah. 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 The other thing that always, speaking of heart of gold, it all, any time that Lilu is disrobing, is it disrobing? Sure. Why okay. Not? <laughs> and she's just like taking off her clothes. Like, I think it's funny that these, I mean, the priest I can understand, but like Corbin Dallas turns around. Yeah. And it just, it shows so much of his character. Like, he's not just some cigarette smoking ex-military douchebag like he's actually a nice guy that tries to do nice things for other people even though he's constantly getting screwed and i just i love that he just had the 
the wherewithal to turn around and he's not just ogling this girl and half naked. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a great character. Um, it's just a great character development or great character adage that he put in there. Well, this is the kind of guy who's got a photo of his boss in his apartment. Uh, (laughs) And and, he wants to meet the one perfect woman. Like, right. Well, and he's, he's also the way he treats her in the, uh, in the beginning of the movie is, is really sweet. Yeah. Uh, you know, he does go in for that unconsensual sleepy kiss, yeah. you know, but uh, uh, she kind of set him straight on that pretty quick. Didn't right. She? The one uh, nude scene in this movie mm-hmm. is about the most tastefully done nude scene I've ever seen. Yes, it is. It's almost PG-13 nudity. Like, uh, you know, I always kind of feel bad for uh, for Kate Winslet because... She's done a nude scene in a movie and it's still got a PG-13 rating. She was basically full frontal and yes. she got a PG-13 rating. That's got to be a bit insulting. I know. And I mean, she's just all in her glory. Was this a PG-13 movie? Uh-huh. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there's two two nude scenes that I've ever seen in a PG-13 movie and that's this and Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I appreciate the... Because people, the way that romance is portrayed nowadays is is either just really super fast or it's really creepy. Like yeah. they they have these advances on these girls and you're just like, whoa, 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 why, why is that happening? But he, it's, just, it's kind of a slow burn. You know, he cares about her, but he knows that she can hold her own. And it's only till until the very last five seconds of the movie is there any like, sexual contact between them they don't even like really kiss until the end of the movie which is again very rare you don't really see that with a protagonist and their love interest you know usually it's like middle of the movie they're you know screwing each other's brains out but but for this one it was just she was just so pure and he recognized that in her and he didn't take advantage of it like he just was a nice guy an all-around good guy and you know i think it it probably all kind of fits in with the theme of the movie because the fifth element was love you know and uh and so if they kind of went straight in for that then they probably wouldn't really be able to use that whole love as the fifth element thing right right because you could totally be like but you just but y'all were doing it like halfway through the movie why is this a (laughs) surprise now right yeah i just I don't know. There's just so many perfect things about this movie. It's, it's like I said, this movie was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. You know, I mean, like if you tried to set out and copy this, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't come off genuine. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I kind of feel like when this movie was being planned, it probably didn't turn out a whole lot like it was planned. But it just yeah. worked out great. I mean... You know, you think about it, it, the think about the set pieces, the costumes. Oh my god, how there much were, do you think they spent on wardrobe? There was 900 costume pieces. Uh Jean-Paul Gaultier mm-hmm. designed every piece. He did Ma- Madonna's uh breast cones or That's right. That's booby right. Cones. <laughs> That's right. Which was fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the I mean, yeah, 900 costume pieces for these characters. I mean, for everyone, not just the main characters, but for extras. And at this point, Jean-Paul Gaultier was a very sought after designer. Yes, that he was. had to be expensive. Oh yes. Oh yeah. But $90 million. I mean, come on. If you're going to have that much of a budget, you might as well go all the way and have one of the best, most sought after costumers be on your movie. Yeah. 
I just know that he was highly sought after and and I mean he very detail oriented and, and just very you know anal about how everybody looked and um again it just cracks me up that Prince thought that the costumes were too effeminate that's insane to me I know <laughs> yeah but yeah and, and the more that we've been talking about this the more that I because for a little while I thought man it'd be super cool if they did a sequel if they had like you know Lilu and Corbin had like this daughter and she's like a hybrid thing like I was like man that'd be super cool but the more that I talk about it the more I'm like I just don't know I think it would be be subpar we can just pretend that's what Lucy was I never thought about that oh my gosh I like that I, I like that a lot my my final thought would be um just just going back to the fact that he didn't take himself so seriously. My One of my all-time favorite scenes is at the end when they've saved the world and they stopped the giant flaming rock from hitting Earth. And David goes, yeah! And then we have Ruby Rod go, what you screaming for? <laughs> Set up a bomb or something? Like, that just... in encapsulates the idea that he just did not take himself so seriously because he could have made this super serious no laughing just you know here's a movie with sci-fi and special effects like it he could have very easily done it that way he did it though he put a humor element into it that really makes it like it, it just gives it another fucking great level because you have you have the the acting you've got the costumes you've got the special effects you've got all of this stuff but just that one extra level of humor just makes it so perfect so i mean you see so many movies that are done not necessarily wrong but just done too serious to the point where you just walk out and you're just like depressed with your life because there was nothing happy about it that's what i love so much about the marvel movies is that they don't take themselves so seriously that they can't have a joke in there or two jokes or five jokes or an ongoing joke, you know? Um, so I, I just, I really appreciate that about this movie is that it just keeps you laughing and it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And you just, again, it's just such a pretty movie that you're just like hooked even with just that. So that's my final thought. That's my final thought too. I mean, you pretty much said everything that I feel about this movie. So I'll just wrap it up with uh, my favorite quote from the movie. Mm-hmm. I am a meat popsicle. <laughs> I mean, come on. What a line. Somebody Did somebody write that? Was that ad-libbed? I don't that know. That was so awkward and, and in a good way. I think that that line itself kind of uh, conveys the attitude of the whole film. You know, he's yeah. just saying some crazy shit. And just they random crazy him. shit. They just move on. Right. Well, I mean, hello. Like, I, he's obviously not a meat popsicle, but they're like, okay. okay. Um. Well, I think un- unless we decide to do something different, but I think next week we're gonna do ravenous. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all we have for this episode. So uh, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks to our two listeners. We really <laughs> appreciate you. You're great. Yeah. We yeah, love you. Y'all are wonderful. Please uh give us a, a five star rating, please. We're we'll, begging you. We're we'll begging you, you right now. I make really great cookies. That's not a metaphor for anything. I'm serious. I make really great cookies. Why didn't you bring cookies? I forgot, man. Fuck. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Vimstafar Cinema. Be sure to tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.